So we, we've, we're at the end, and the irony is, is, as I was preparing this final one in the Nehemiah series, uh, I, I looked at our final chapter, which we were looking at, and I just suddenly realized that we had actually covered all of it, and I sort of jumped ahead of myself in the sermon uh, just before that, the sermon last week. And so I'm going to look at a passage in Romans now, which, which to me encompasses uh, the Nehemiah series that we've looked at and the book that we've walked through. And I know I gave you a number of points and steps last week to look through and walk through as you live out the vision God's called you to. And this is a hard one that at the end I'm going to get us to stand um, if we're up for it and really make a commitment to say, God, this is the type of person that I want to be with your help. And I, I'm excited to, for God to do that. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love you to turn to Romans 12, 1 and 2. And a number of you will know this passage. Uh, if you don't or if you're new to church, um, I'd love you to share with someone next to you uh, or else... Um, if you do have a Bible and you're not exactly sure where it is, uh, it's towards the end. <laughs> Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, if you know where those are, Acts, Romans, straight afterwards. And uh, this is what it says. Um, this is Paul writing. And to give you a bit of context, he's uh, explained how good God is just before. He's explained what grace is, what uh, salvation means. And on the back of that, on the back of what salvation means, he says this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Say that again. Um, in fact, I'll read, I'll, I'll read the rest first. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Read that again shortly. I'm going to bring up where I believe Nehemiah lived this out and others. But there's a phrase by a man called Edmund Burke. And this is what it says. One of my favorite of all time. He says, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And I thank the Lord that there are those like Nehemiah who've gone before us who did something. I thank the Lord for that from him and other generations who chose to do something about evil, things that weren't right. Who saw that something wasn't right and instead of staying on the sidelines said, no, no, I'm, I'm actually going to get stuck into the game. I'm going to be part of the solution. I thank God that there were people who chose to step into the impossible and make a difference in the world. They were far from perfect. They made mistakes. They made errors. But they stood up and they changed the course of history. One such person, I don't have a picture of him, as you can see, um, was a man called St. Patrick. And very recently we've uh, celebrated St. Patrick's Day, which sadly is usually for the Irish just an opportunity to get absolutely wasted. But uh, the man himself was an astounding man. We're going to come back to Romans just now, so keep your Bibles open. Patrick was kidnapped in Scotland in 405, and he became a slave in then a very pagan island, a land devoid of Christian faith. He was actually captured by Irish pirates. He managed to escape six years later, but it wasn't, so he escaped back, uh, did some study in France. It wasn't until six years later, or not six years later, sorry, he escaped six years later. It wasn't until his 40s that he um, really felt the call of God in his heart to 
go back to Ireland, the place that he was captured and was held hostage in. So he focused on converting chiefs and the clan system in, uh, throughout Ireland. And whilst he was not the only one responsible for seeing Ireland change, many say that he was the most significant character. 1,500 years ago, Ireland was an idol-worshipping, slave-trading nation. And in just one generation, Ireland was transformed into a godly nation known for its scholars and missionaries. In one generation. In one generation. The best-selling, and this is a secular book, which is very interesting, called How the Irish Saved Civilization, tells how this nation was transformed primarily by the work of Patrick, now called St. Patrick. Secular book says it it was transformed by one man. During his 30 years of missionary work in Ireland, he established over 700 churches and schools and trained over 3,000 ministers. But his ministry went way beyond the church. He also helped transform government reform laws and brought the end of slavery in Ireland. One man. And we say, what difference can we make? Florence Nightingale. So I've got a few, but I love looking at heroes of the faith. So I'm going to jump in. Florence Nightingale, although coming from a very wealthy family, and she did, and she was uh, sort of pleased to be married to another wealthy man, uh, she had a passion for the sick and the broken. And she had a passion to see people looked after properly and effectively through medicine and in hospitals. During the Crimean War, she served with other women and transformed the hospital that they arrived at. She made it a mission to improve hygiene practices, significantly lowering the death rate, they say by at least two-thirds in that hospital and in others in England. Reducing the death rate by two-thirds is astounding by the things she put in place. Uh, She has forever affected um, the direction of medical epidemiology. And in 1859, she published Notes on Hospitals, which focused on how to properly run civilian hospitals, which is still used and instituted today. She was consulted on how best to manage field hospitals in the military, and she served as an authority on public sanitation in India, of all places. Although she never went there herself. Her writing sparked nationwide health care reform, and in 1860, she established St. Thomas's Hospital and the Nightingale Training School for Nurses. Hospitals as we know today, and in the majority of the world, would not be as they are if it wasn't for that one lady who chose to give up her wealth, gave up her status, and she chose to serve the least of these. Before 1918, women had almost no role in British politics. They didn't even have the right to vote. And it was only in 1897 when Millicent Fawcett founded the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies to do with voting that the campaign for women to be considered the same in voting rights started to come into place. And these campaigners were known as the suffragists, not suffragettes, they came a bit later, and they believed in debate and peaceful reformation. And not too much happened, although it was the start. And then a lady called Emmeline or Emmeline in 1903 Pankhurst and her daughters Christabel and Sylvia, um, they really took it a lot further and spoke about deeds, not words. And these women became known as the suffragettes and they started making headlines across England. And I don't agree with all of the things that they did because they were psychos. I mean, psychos in a good way, in a good way and in a healthy way, but they cut phone lines and they, I mean, they were also destructive. And that's the side that I wasn't chuffed with, although we would say that maybe it was needed to bring about what happened. But they interrupted political meetings, they chained themselves to railings, they... Um, They yelled while waving banners, votes for women. They were regularly arrested. They went on hunger strikes. But because of them, society in England and many other nations has been changed. Because of a few ladies who weren't happy with the status quo, who decided to step out and said things weren't right. Because of that, 
things have been changed. And it paid off. 1918, the act was passed giving women um, over the age of 30 (laughs) the right to vote. But it would take a further 10 years for that to happen completely. But because of the work of a few small ladies who said things aren't right and we're going to be part of the difference. A few more, are you bored? I love hearing the story of this. And don't worry, I haven't ignored the Bible. We're getting to it. In 1768, John Witherspoon, I struggle to take him seriously because of his surname, but uh, I still think it's quite cool. He was a a pastor in Scotland, and he left that to go into education. Many people were like, what are you doing? So he was in Scotland, he left, and he went across to the States, to the New World, to pursue um, a career in education. He didn't abandon his faith, and he served God as an educator, the same as he would a minister. He was there, and he was in the mix. So teachers who are here, I want you to see the, the impact you can have from living out what God has called you to. He became president of a school that trained ministers, the College of New New Jersey, now Princeton University. Many of Witherspoon's graduates became pastors and ministers. Those who didn't end up in ministry included a U.S. president, a U.S. vice president, 10 cabinet officials, 21 senators, 39 congressmen, one Supreme Court justice, one-fifth of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, and one-sixth of the delegates to the U.S. Constitution Convention. He is often called the man who shaped the men who shaped America. Amazing. One man who had a call on his heart to say, I'm, I'm a pastor, but actually I think education is for me. I'm going to go across the seas to the new world, and I'm just going to live out my faith as an educator and just look at what happened. Martin Luther King doesn't need much introduction. He was a man from a humble background, a hard worker, and he wanted to see all Americans, regardless of race, treated the same, treated with equality as Jesus does. And in 1955, he led the famous bus boycott, which lasted 382 days, over a year. A bus boycott because people weren't able to sit together on the buses. Absolutely horrific. During that time, he was arrested, his home was bombed, and he faced personal abuse. In the 11-year period between 1957 and 1968, King traveled over 6 million miles. He spoke over 2,500 times, appearing wherever there was injustice, protest, and action. And meanwhile, he wrote five books, as well as numerous articles at the same time. He was an absolute machine. He led the famous protest in Birmingham, Alabama. That was the one that caught the the attention of the entire world. He planned drives in Alabama for the registration um, of, uh, of black voters. He directed the peaceful march on Washington, D.C. of 250,000 people where he, he, he gave the famous address, I have a dream. He conferred with President Kennedy. He compa- campaigned with President Lyndon Johnson. He was arrested upwards of 20 times, assaulted at least four times. He was awarded five honorary degrees. Finally, he was assassinated before a rally in 19. 19- 68. But America and much of what we see in race equality across the globe would not be the same if it wasn't for one man from a humble background who decided that no matter what, I'm going to see people seen as God sees them. And then finally, in the late 1700s, slavery was so entrenched in the British system that only a handful of people thought it was even possible for it to ever be changed. But one of those people was a man called William Wilberforce. 
Whilst he never took school seriously, he did have political ambitions. And because of his family upbringing, he managed to get into that. And he became friends with William Pitt, who later would become prime minister. But initially, he cared about himself. And then God took hold of his heart in his early 20s. And this is what he once said. So enormous, so dreadful, so irremediable. Can't remedy it. Again, guys, that's why I didn't do English at school. (laughs) So enormous, so dreadful, did the slave trade's wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would, but I would from this time determine that I would never rest until I had effected its abolition. It's what he decided in his early 20s, and he never rested. I'll read a little bit more. So he was elected into parliament at age 21, and uh, he had two life, twofold life mission, which he said, God Almighty has set before me two great objectives, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of morals. And for the next 46 years, Wilberforce worked tirelessly to change English law, to change English culture, and to change the English economy in order to end the slave trade. The bills that he introduced, listen to this, were defeated in 1791, 1792, 1793, 1797, 1798, 1799, 1804, and 1805. They were all defeated. He faced opposition and attack on all sides. But three days before his death, on July 26, 1833, the House of Commons passed the bill that abolished slave trade in the entire British Empire. I wonder how many of us would be able to go through that many denials and not give up. And as I said, the final one, which we've been looking at for these last 10 weeks or so, Nehemiah. This one man was responsible for seeing that a nation was rebuilt and reforms were put in place to ensure that the Jewish people continue to understand who they really were and that they needed to stand out from the crowd. Would England still have slaves if it wasn't for Wilberforce? Maybe. Would black people in America still experience segregation if Martin Luther King hadn't paid the ultimate cost? Quite possibly. Would Ireland still be a land devoid of faith and full of anarchy if one man in his 40s decided not to return? To stay in the comfort of his home? Would medicine still be in the dark ages if Florence Nightingale hadn't stepped into a hospital during the Crimean War? Would ladies still not be able to be vote to vote and not be treated as equals if Millicent Fawcett and Emmeline, Emily Pankhurst hadn't made a stand? Would America have been built on Christian principles if it wasn't for people like John Witherspoon? The list could go on, but the bottom line is true. That, if e- that evil will prevail if good men and women like you and I do nothing. It will. This brings me back to the verse, and we're going to do a stand and close as we get towards um, the end. brings me back to the Romans verse 12, verse 1 and 2. I believe each of these people, some, we're not exactly sure on their faith, but we do know with Nehemiah, they lived this out. They lived out Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. And so I've just got four short points to look at. We're going to pray. We're going to stand. We're going to respond. So the first one, I appeal to you. And I do appeal to you as family of harvest today. I really appeal to you because of what Jesus has done. Because of what he's done for you and I. We just celebrated communion. The fact that he paid the price for you and I on the cross. And on the back of that, I appeal to each 
one of us. Appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God. Paul talks about the mercies of God. And that's what these people who stood through the ages, many of them, they understood the mercies of God. They understood the grace of God. And that's why they were able to push through the most difficult of things. Other translations would say the compassion of God. The mercies of God, the compassion of God. And what is that? Well, it's the gospel. Maybe many of us have heard this many times. We should never get tired of the gospel. It should be something that blows our minds each and every day. But maybe you're hearing it for the first time today. Maybe you've heard it a few times, but it hasn't really hit home. It's the mighty, powerful, glorious king who passionately pursues relationship with a broken people who have no hope but for him. It's about a people destined for hell with no hope of changing course, but for Jesus taking our sin, our mess on himself, that if we would just turn to him, if we would repent, if we would believe our sins are wiped clean and the trajectory of our life is transformed from hell to heaven and we enjoy restored relationship with God on earth, that's mercy, that's compassion, that's grace. And if you haven't received it, receive it today. If it's something that's become something that you don't really look at, that you're just like, I'm just past that. I've been a Christian for 20 years. The gospel's old news. The cross is old news. In fact, I kind of get a bit tired of communion. Don't. It's something that affects us more and more deeply the more we grow closer to Christ. It's what he did for us on the cross. So the first one, believe and accept Jesus Christ. And on the back of that, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Once we get belief, once we get what Christ has done for us, the inevitable is that our behavior changes. It's inevitable. We've, we've shared it often before, but our behavior will always be affected by our belief. It will always be affected by our belief. And inevitably, as God transforms our heart, we'll want to give God our lives. Gratitude and thanksgiving overflow because we're so in awe of what he's done for us on the cross. And so the result is, is Lord, my life is yours. Take it, 100%. Take it, because I know I can trust you. And I can trust you that you have the very best interest for me. And so we want to offer our bodies. This area is something we may struggle with because of sinful nature, fear, incorrect belief. But when Paul talks about our body, what he's talking about is he's talking about everything. We're going to stand a bit later. If that's for you saying, Lord, I might not have done it before, but I want to freshly say, you have it all. You have it all, my future, my career, my dreams, my desires, it's all yours. Use it for your glory, everything. The amazing part is where it says, this is, offer this living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's amazing that in spite of our sin, because of Christ in our hearts, our sacrifice is pleasing to God. It's acceptable. It's holy. What a privilege because in Jesus Christ we're seen as right in God's eyes. If it wasn't for Jesus we'd be offering a moldy or piece of chocolate. We'd just be saying God here, this is it. But because of Christ in our hearts we're offering something that's holy and pleasing to Him because our lives have been purchased by Christ on the cross. And that's incredible. doesn't matter what we've done in the past. doesn't matter where we've messed up to this point. doesn't matter the mess-ups we're going to do in the future, because we will. None of us will ever get to a place where we don't sin. We always will. That's where the cross is so astounding. But we can daily offer ourselves to Jesus as holy and acceptable. 
We're going to have the chance to respond to that a bit later as well. Thirdly, just two more points. Do not be conformed to this world. Nehemiah was a man who was saying, I'm not happy with how things are in the status quo. When I see things put back as they should, it was the same as these heroes of the faith that I've just shared about. When we get part one and two right, we understand what Christ has done. When we're saying, God, we're offering ourselves to you. What we start to do is analyze our life and go, Lord, what's conforming to this world that shouldn't? So as he works on our hearts, it's inevitable that we'll want what he wants. We desire to honor him above everything else. But sin in society does get in the way. It definitely does. And there's so many gray areas in this nation and in others where we start to look not quite as light as we should. We start to look a little bit gray in between the light and the darkness. But we mustn't conform. We mustn't give in to the culture of the day. What would have been the case if the people that we've just looked at today did that? If they just said, it just doesn't feel quite right, but it's okay. Everyone's doing it. Jesus calls us to be different. He calls us to be lights in the darkness. And what is the Holy Spirit convicting you of today? As you look inward, what do you feel Him challenging you on today? What do you feel Him pinpointing in your life and saying, there's a little bit of conformity there? He'll tell you, that's how good He is. He has our best interests at heart, but He'll be pinpointing it. Maybe it's an area of business, maybe it's thought life, maybe it's action. He'll tell you. The challenge is, is believing and trusting that when he asks you to give something up, he will always come through. So let him speak to you. Where have you conformed? Is it your speech, is it your acceptance of things that aren't right? Is that you've given into the culture of the day? The last thing. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Transformed comes from the Greek word metamorphe, which is where we get the English word metamorphosis, almost the butterfly, the transformation from caterpillar to butterfly, to change from the inside out. So we need to alter our beliefs internally in the control center of the body, the mind. We need to adjust our beliefs there for it to outwork to the rest of our life. Our actions then change. Because our mind controls our attitudes, controls our thoughts, controls our feelings. And therefore, we need to adjust that to see action change. So to change behavior, we need to change what our mind thinks and what our mind believes. And that's a process. Be transformed. It takes time. By asking God to renew our mind. Renew how we think, because that will affect how we act. But as you allow, and that's the key word, allow. Because we're very good at not allowing God. It's difficult for us to sit and go, okay, Lord, please actually renew my mind. Rather than you can renew little parts of it. But not the parts I want to hold on to. As you let God do that, you'll find him transform you. It's about input-output. What we feed our minds on will determine how life looks for us. Feed on the things of God, your output will be a life lived for God. Feed on things not of God, it's going to be very difficult to live a life of God. Input output what you find is that you'll start to know and want God's will and you really will believe it's good acceptable and perfect so often we struggle to believe that God's will for our lives is good and perfect sometimes we struggle that and I just want to challenge us today when he's died for us on the cross we can really be secure in the fact that everything he has for us is good 
We can be so secure in that. You don't have to worry about that at all. It won't be an idea for you that God's will is best. It'll be a belief. and Your life will start to look more and more like the glorious life he's called you to. And this is something that has been so exciting for us as a team to see at Harvest. We're seeing people put their lives right. We're seeing people through the series step into what God has for them. And it's exciting to see trajectories change as people give their lives to Christ. And as people give all of their life to Christ. It's incredibly exciting for us to see. So the question that I have for us as Harvest today is, will you and I do something? Or will we stand back and say, transformation of society is not possible, or it's not for me? That's the question today, is will you and I do something? We might say it's impossible to see Zimbabwe restored in terms of perfect roads, drivers who obey the rule of law, police who serve the people, governments who are not involved in fraud, and the list could go on. And believe me, that looks impossible. I'll be the first to say that, humanly speaking. But do you think when Wilberforce stood there and said, the whole of England believes in the slave trade, I'm sure it was impossible, but he did it. When Martin Luther King looked at it and said, this is the fractured society of America that I see, and it's impossible to change, it's never going to happen. It's impossible, but he stepped into it, and God made it possible. So if we choose to be like one of the people mentioned, like Nehemiah, this nation truly could become the jewel of the world in years to come. And if you don't believe it's possible for Zimbabwe, my challenge would be, be somewhere where you do believe it's possible. Because transformation of society looks different. Transformation into a Christ-centered society and into things being as they should be will look different in different places of the globe. But I would challenge all of us to be in a place Whether it's here, whether it's somewhere else, that's not really relevant. To be in a place where we say, God, I know it's impossible to see this change, but you can do it. I've been watching on BBC about what's happening in France. And obviously they're the fastest growing Islamic state, um, effectively in Europe, the most control of it. And there was a man who's just given his life, a policeman who just traded his life for someone. Um, It happened yesterday, so they would be free and he was killed in the process. Um, And I just said, Lord, we need people in France. We need Christ followers who are saying the control that's happening in this place is not right, but I'm going to stand and be counted. There's any number of nations on the globe. So my challenge is, is wherever we are, if we're here, we need to be here to see it transformed. And if not, that's okay, because God will put on each of our hearts a nation, a place, a people to be transformed. And then we get stuck in to the process. You just have to read the news to see that this world is in desperate need of Jesus Christ. And wherever we are, we're called to bring transformation. Wherever we are. It's not so much the issue of where. It's the issue of transformation happening. So what areas God put on your heart? If we don't get our hands dirty where God has challenged us. If we don't get in the trenches and off the benches. I like that. eh? Do you like that? I claim it. (laughs) Say it again. Say it again. If we don't get in the trenches and off the benches, change will never come. Change will never come. God is calling his church to see nations discipled, to see nations changed. And he's asking who will stand and be counted. Yes, we're called to make a difference in people's lives. But we're also called to see nations changed. And that's big, but we're called to see nations changed, to make a difference in society. And we've seen that through Nehemiah, through one man. But it will take being open to a vision from God, obediently stepping out, pressing on through conflict, 
experiencing breakthrough and being in it for the long haul. It's going to take those things. And I can't wait to see what the Lord's going to do amongst us in the weeks and months ahead. I don't say that lightly. It's incredibly exciting to see what God is doing amongst us. And so I wonder if you can bow your heads with me. I just want us to do some, to do some response. And this might be five people, it might be ten, it might be no one. That's okay. But I do want us to show with a physical action a heartfelt decision. Because life does change with decisions. Many times it's a decision and feelings and process comes later. So we'll know that with forgiveness. That we we choose to forgive. We may not feel like it. But we make the decision, we make it while we thought through the processes in our mind and, we, and in our belief and we make the decision and then God steps in and he brings the feelings and he brings the excitement and he brings the joy. But it starts with a heartfelt decision. And so looking at Romans, just with your head, um, with, with your heads bowed or, you know, they can be open, it doesn't really matter. But we, The progression is is when we catch what God's done for us on the cross. When we catch the price he's paid for you and I. When we get struck by his mercy and grace. That's when we move to saying, Lord, I want my life to be a living sacrifice. And it then becomes a decision. And then God does things as a result. And so if you've been struck by his mercy and grace, maybe afresh today, maybe in the past... And if you're saying, Lord, I want to offer myself as a living sacrifice. I want to stand and be counted. I want to get in the trenches. I want to get dirty for you and for your glory because of what you've done for me. I want my mind renewed. I want to see the world as you do each and every day. But as those people have gone in the past, I want for your glory, my name as it were, to make history Purely, not because I do anything special, but because I say, here's all of me, God, take it. And if that's you and you're saying, that, that, that's bursting within me, and I want to make that call, I want to make that decision. Um, it's not about being a Christ follower, but if you want to stand for that, great. It's about saying, Lord, I, I want to do this thing. I don't want to be stagnant. I, I don't want to be on my seat and be a attendance, a Sunday attendance Christ follower, I, I want to get my hands dirty, then I just, I want you to stand. Think about it. It's a decision. It's a decision of the heart. And it might be a few of you. It might be one of you. But if God's really touched you and you're saying, I want to give him everything today, then, then stand. And you can stand quietly. Um, just and keep your eyes focused on Christ. It's him. It's him. That's who, you, that's who you're standing for. You're saying, Lord, I, I want to be counted. I want to be counted today. And don't feel pressure. If you're sort of saying, actually, it it feels that, you know, I'm I'm at peace. I'm at peace with what I'm doing and how I'm living at the moment. That's great. Don't feel any pressure. Just ask God to keep speaking to you. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for the people who have stood this morning to say, it's 100%. It's all in. Because of, what, because of what you've done for me, it's all in. And, and, I'm, and I'm there to be part of the solution. Holy Spirit, thank you that it's not what I say, but it's something that you do in our hearts individually. 
Thank you that you're the one who speaks with power and one word from you on the back of a decision changes everything. So for these people who've, who've stood, Lord Jesus, I ask that most of all, you would do something deep in their heart right now. You would speak with clarity like never before. You'd put on their heart things for them to get involved in. You'd give them courage. You'd give them boldness. That as they step out of these walls of this room today, they would step into a different lifestyle. They'd step into a way of offering their body each and every day for you, for your glory, and for your fame. And I have no doubt that this nation will be different and will look different as a result of people standing today. No doubt. Because I know that one person can change a nation. What will it be like when 20 step out and do it? And Jesus, we know it's impossible. We know the prayers that we're praying are impossible in man's eyes. But with you, they are possible. With you, they're possible. And so I uh, pray a huge blessing on these people. For those who are sitting, I ask that you would speak to them with clarity now, um, that you would encourage them, that you would inspire them. Lord Jesus, as your people, as your church, I ask that you would use us as harvest to make an impact in the impossible. That you would use us to bring heaven on earth in just a small way. That you would use us to see people and society changed and transformed. These are crazy prayers. Human speaking, they're impossible. But thank you that we serve the eternal God. Thank you that we serve the one who died and who rose again. What an absolute privilege. Your amazing name we pray, God. Amen. Should we give God a hand? What an awesome God.